though we've been delivered from the penalty of sin, while there is real freedom from being sin slave, the truth of the matter is, is that while sin no longer owns us, sin can still be master over us because of this sin principle called the flesh. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Romans, and as we enter the second half of chapter 7 today, we see the Apostle Paul addressing the struggle that takes place in the life of a believer. That struggle between the old sin nature or flesh and the new spirit that dwells inside. Our message is entitled and addresses The Battle Within. I want to invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 7. If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great epistle. And I know of no other New Testament book that is more exacting, more demanding, more intensive, and more challenging to your heart, mind, and will than the epistle of Paul to the Romans. On the book of Romans, John Calvin said, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. Luther said that we ought to memorize this letter in its entirety, word for word. In like fashion, William Tyndall, the father of the English Bible, we studied him in our course in Bibliology on Wednesday nights. Of Romans, he described it in this way. He called it the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, the most pure gospel, and also a light in a way into the whole of Scripture. William Tyndale, he gave us the first English Bible based on the Greek New Testament. And he was a great man of faith. And he said this as well, the more it is studied, the easier it is. And the more it is chewed, the more pleasant it becomes. Romans is the constitution of Christianity. And it is my desire that we truly learn this letter. That by the time we are done with this book, you can think your way chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph through the entire letter. Now, if you've been with us, we've seen the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit paint a number of different portraits of man. In chapters 1 through 3, he gives us a picture of the lost man, a picture of a person with his head down, with his mouth closed, guilty, and understanding that he is worthy of wrath. Beginning towards the end of 3, into 4 and 5, he gives us a picture of the justified man. His head is up, his mouth is open in praise because he has peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, it gets even better. He gives us a picture of the liberated man. He teaches us that we've been released from the demands of the sin nature, that we no longer have to be slaves to sin, that we have a choice. But here in the seventh chapter where we are today, he paints a picture of the wretched man. It's a self-portrait. Paul is describing himself... And you can see that it's plain from all the personal pronouns throughout the chapter. I counted each one this week. The personal pronoun me occurs 12 times. 
The personal pronoun my occurs four times, myself one time, and the personal pronoun I occurs 30 times. 47 times he uses the personal pronoun. This picture is a picture of a wretched man, a person who's living in defeat, a person who's struggling. Now, it seems very inappropriate for the great apostle Paul to have such a struggle in his life. In fact, some, as I noted last time, have assumed that this must be a description of Paul ever before he met Jesus Christ. But as we will see today, ever so clearly, no, this is a description of someone, a description of someone who has met Jesus Christ. And Paul wants to remind us that there's a struggle that actually must take place in this process of sanctification, that process of becoming conformed to the image of Christ. He's preparing us for some tremendous lessons in the eighth chapter where the liberated man of six and the wretched man of seven becomes the victorious Christian in chapter eight. Now remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial and six, seven, and eight hang as a unit in this doctrinal section dealing with our sanctification in Jesus Christ. So I don't want you to miss a single sermon. It sounds like you have found it. Let's begin by reading our passage, Romans 7, beginning now in verse 14. Paul writes, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. I am not practicing what I would like to do. I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Do you know that there are some Christians who are unhappy Christians. Listen again to that cry. Wretched man, wretched man that I am. Who said that? Paul said it. And he didn't say it before he was saved. He said it after he was saved. Wretched man that I am. Can you imagine a child of God, an apostle saying that? I can imagine it because I've said it. And Paul is going to teach us that the key to victory in chapter 8 begins with an understanding of just how wretched we are, but the chapter ends with a word of hope. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He'll deliver us. Now, let me set the context because many of you are watching through television. Some are live streaming through the internet, and some are here for the first time in this assembly. The broader context of Romans, if you remember, there are three principal divisions. Chapters 1 through 8 is the doctrinal section where he deals with three principal doctrines. Chapters 9 through 11 is the national section where he deals with the people of Israel. 
And chapters 12 through 16 is the practical section where he takes the great theology that he has covered in this epistle and puts it into shoe leather. We have seen that each section in turn divides into three sections. In the doctrinal section, he begins with the doctrine of condemnation. He gives a picture of the lost man, and indeed his head is down. He understands that he is justly guilty. His mouth is shut, closed to the judgment, because he understands in light of how holy God is, how unrighteous he is. Beginning in 3.20 all the way through chapter 5, he moves from the doctrine of condemnation to the doctrine of justification. And he shows the justified man with his head up praising God because he has peace with God. He has been made right and suited for heaven because he's exchanged his filthy righteousness for the righteousness of Christ given as a gift by grace through faith. Then in chapters 6 through 8, he deals with the process of sanctification, that doctrine that deals with how it is that we are conformed and made into the image of Christ. If you remember in chapter 6, the apostle wants us to understand that our sin nature has been defeated, it has been disabled, it has been deprived of its power, so that now we have a choice. We no longer have to obey the sin nature. God rendered the old man dead at the cross, so we now have a choice to present ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. Now that brings us into the immediate context of chapter 7. And again, he's speaking here of the wretched man, the defeated Christian. And if you remember in this chapter, he's describing the Christian's relationship to the law. In chapter 6, twice over, he said, we are not under law, but under grace. And Paul knew that statements like that would be easily misconstrued by those who did not like him. And so he feels the need to respond to his critics. Is the law of God meaningless for the believer? Can we blow off and disregard God's commandments? Does God's law have a continuing place in the life of the believer? These are real issues, not just in that century, but in this century. In secular realms, more and more Americans are viewing Bible-believing evangelical Christians with a sense of disdain. They view us with suspicion. They view our morality as oppressive and even bigoted and outdated. And so again, even this week, there was a clash between those who said life begins at the moment of conception. And we have a case in this country where a man has aborted little babies and they were born alive. And he decided to kill those babies after they were born. And there are some who are arguing that's a woman's choice between her and her doctor. No, that's not the way God thinks. So it's legal in this country to abort a baby one day before it's supposed to be born. We saw another clash over this issue of gender and homosexuality. And so today we have government officials who are saying that this is an equality issue. No, this is not an equality issue. This is an issue of morality. It is an issue that deals with the law of God. And so in the secular circles, they view us more and more as oppressive and as outdated. And then in the Christian realm, 
Well, there's a lot of controversy as to how we are to understand the law of God. And so if you speak of especially keeping one day and seven as separated, the Lord's Day, an Old Testament application of the, a New Testament application of the Old Testament Sabbath. Or if you speak of tithing, they say, well, that smacks with legalism, that that is done and over with, and that's not something we do today. And still there are other Christians who try to observe the law, but they are trying to do it in their own strength and in their own power, and so they are very, very defeated. Now, if you read this chapter several times, you will discover there are three principal divisions to it. If you remember in verses 1 through 6, we studied the attitude of the legalist. The legalist is in bondage to the law. He thinks that his acceptance before the law, before God, is by what he does. And there are two kinds of legalists. There's the unsaved legalist that he tears apart and smashes in chapters 1 through 3. And he shows that he is unrighteous and that his keeping of the commandments of God can never save him or redeem him. But in this chapter, he's dealing with the Christian legalist, the man who understands, no, I am saved by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ alone. But he is trying to keep the law in his own strength. And so if you were here in 1 through 6, we saw through the illustration of marriage how God had taught us that we've been released from the law, that we, through the death of Jesus Christ, can be identified with him. Then in verses 7 through 13, he deals with the libertine. He's the opposite of the legalist. He is the person in the non-Christian realm who would say, well, it doesn't matter. You can blow off God's law and do whatever you want. And of course, there were people during the time of the Protestant Reformation who accused evangelical Christians for preaching the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, of being libertines. They called them antinomianists. We saw that the word antinomian is from two Greek words that literally means against the law. In practice, it looks like this. They were saying that we teach because we're saved by grace and not by works. And once you are saved, you're saved forever and secured for heaven that you can live however you want. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. And that is a straw man that they built. But let me just say, Paul again is addressing Christians at the church at Rome. And Christians can become somewhat libertine in their behavior. And they can listen to the wiles of the evil one. And when God deals with the forgiveness of the saved person, John will write these little things, my little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. And the devil will sometimes say, go ahead and sin. You can just confess it. And we live the life of a libertine. So in 1 through 6, we are released from the law. Then in the next paragraph in 7 to 13, he shows the relevancy of the law, that the law is a good thing. The law is not a bad thing. And when we step into chapter 8, he's going to show us that the moral dictates of the law still fully apply. And in 8.4, he will say that God's design is that the requirement of the law will be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now in verses 14 through 25, he deals with the biblical balance of the law-abiding Christian. 
And the law-abiding Christian understands the beauty of the law, but he understands the weakness of the flesh within. And he understands that he needs to depend upon God the Holy Spirit to fulfill the law through him. So in summary, you have the legalist who fears the law. He views himself as in bondage to the law. And Paul says, no, you've been released through the law through the death of Christ. That you have a new basis for acceptance through the death of the Lord Jesus that continues even after you are a saved individual. Then in the next paragraph, he deals with the libertine who hates the law. He repudiates the law. And Paul shows the beauty and the relevancy of the law. And now he will deal with the law-abiding Christian who loves the law, who wants to obey the law. But he understands he needs to do it in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, that's where we've been. Let's zoom in now on the text this morning. There's a note-taking outline, if you're new, there in your bulletin. You might want to jot down a few thoughts for further reflection and study this week. Three things that I want you to notice. First, the condition. I want you to understand something about the condition of the Apostle Paul. Now, as you read this paragraph, I hope you picked up on it this morning, there is a change in the tenses from the previous paragraph that we studied last time. In 7 through 13, Paul is describing his life before he became a believer, before he was converted on the Damascus road. And so all the way through it, he uses a past tense. Tenses are important in the Bible. The Lord Jesus gave an argument for his deity on the tense of a verb. He taught in the Sermon on the Mount that the words are inspired, and not only the words, but the smallest letters within the Scripture is itself inspired. Everything is inspired. So it's important that you carefully interpret the Bible so you can properly apply the Bible. There are not many interpretations to the Word of God. There is only one interpretation to the Word of God, but many applications. And so Paul, in a past tense, look at verse 7. He says, I would not, past tense. Look into your Bibles. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. I would not have known about coveting. Look at verse 8. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced, past tense, produced in me, coveting of every kind. He adds in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. At the end of the verse, he says, I died. You see that? Verse 10, he said, the commandment which was to result in life proved, past tense, to result in death. He's, again, if you remember from last time, describing that whole thing and that whole process that God used to bring about his conversion. In verse 11, he says, the commandment deceived me. It killed me. Again, a past tense all the way through the text. Eris or imperfects. Now, when you come into the next paragraph, he uses a present tense. Again, it's not I would and I was, but it is I am. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, he says, I am doing. He says, I am not practicing. In verse 15, I do, I do not, I agree. In verse 16, he says in verse 17, I am. In verse 18, I have these all underlined in my Bible. I know. Um, I wish and I practice and I do not wish. In verse 19, I am doing, and I do not wish, and I am no longer, in verse 20, 
I find then, verse 21. Verse 22, I joyfully concur. Again, a present tense. Verse 23, I see. And finally, verse 24, wretched man that I am, no longer was, but am. Clearly, he's not writing any further of his past experience, but of his present experience. In addition, before we dig into the finer details, I want you to notice that in this section of Scripture, Paul repeats himself twice. And he does it not because he doesn't have anything to say, but because God the Holy Spirit wants him to emphasize a truth. And so in verses 14 to 17, he describes his predicament. And then in verses 18 to 20, he repeats his predicament a second time. Look at verse 14. Let's look at the details. For we know that the law is spiritual. We've established that, right? That the law is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. We just read this morning of God's law from Psalm 119. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Now, when you come from the original languages that God inspired the Bible in, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, the New Testament in Greek, a few sentences in Aramaic, and you put it into the receptor language, the language you're translating in, sometimes it can be a little awkward if you're a little bit too literal. In fact, none of us really in the truest sense have a literal translation of the Bible in our laps. It would be very difficult to read because Greek is structured very different from English. Sometimes the very first word in the sentence is a verb. That's not typical in English. It's a subject, verb, object. Well, sometimes in Greek, the very first word is a verb. And sometimes you move the object and you put it as the first word in the sentence as well for emphasis. But sometimes in trying to make it readable, we're not always as literal. And if you interpret the Greek into English very literal, it becomes very wooden and awkward. But it can be helpful at times because literally the text does not say sold into bondage to sin, but sold into bondage to the sin. And we're going to see here in our passage this morning that he's not talking about a particular sin, but of the principle of sin, what we call the sinful nature, the flesh. And so though we've been delivered from the penalty of sin, while there is real freedom from being sin slave, the truth of the matter is, is that while sin no longer owns us, that's the theme of chapter 6, sin can uh, still be master over us, which is what he's going to hammer here in chapter 7 because of this sin principle called the flesh. Look at verse 18. He describes his flesh. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. There is nothing good in me in my flesh. And by flesh here is a number of new translations. Paraphrase it. They say there's nothing that good dwells in my sinful nature. And of course, the more mature a believer becomes, the more they grow up in Christ, the more aware they are that there's nothing good that dwells in their flesh. Only that which is done in and through the power of Christ via God the Holy Spirit living in us is truly good. Even when you do something through Christ that is good, your flesh will raise its old ugly head. 
You beg God to be a good father and a good mother. And someone comes along and they say, man, I, I, I really admire the way you're raising your children. Or you beg God, God, help me to teach that Sunday school class today with clarity and power that lives are changed. And someone comes up after the class and they said, boy, that was great today. That was really a good class. I, I learned so much. And, and then the old flesh says, yeah, you're a pretty good teacher. Yeah, you are a good parent. But you see, as you grow in Christ, you understand that in yourself you're a big zero. That anything that is truly good only comes as God does it through you as you avail yourself to Him. Two men died and they stood at the pearly gates. Don't you like those theologically corrupt pearly gate jokes? And they meet St. Peter and they said... We want to come in. And Peter says, well, we have room for only one more person. Which of you is the more humble? <laughs> you get it? No, you all are. Come on, wake up. It's a rainy day. <laughs> for I know that nothing good dwells in me. Paul is in humility truly saying that in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Now, remember the word flesh, socks, can have different meanings depending on the way it is used. There are some words in Greek, like in English, that in every context, in every usage only means one thing. There are other words in English that can mean different things in different contexts. The word pool, do we mean a carpool or a swimming pool or the game of pool you shoot? Well, the context will determine it. And that's the way it is with this word Flesh, context determines its meaning. And it's used in a number of different ways. Sometimes in Scripture, it's used to refer to the literal flesh that covers your skeleton. God uses it that way in the book of Revelation. We're at the end of the battle of Armageddon. God calls His vultures and they come from all over the earth. And the Bible says they will eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both great, both free men and slaves, both small and great. On occasion, sometimes the word flesh is used in the Bible to describe the whole physical portion of man. There's a body that is your human space suit that you walk in. There's the real you on the inside that is your spirit or your soul, the immaterial portion. But sometimes flesh is used to describe the physical dimension of man. And so there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They were asleep. Their bodies were tired. Paul likewise said to the Corinthian church that when we came into Macedonia, our flesh, our bodies had no rest. The flesh is the physical portion of our bodies, the part that tires, that gets hungry, that bleeds when it's cut. But the flesh also refers to the weak, sin-tainted aspect of our body that is incapable of good on its own. And in that sense, the flesh is corrupt. And allowed to reign, it will grieve the Spirit of God and will ultimately lead to ill consequences in the life of a believer. If you would like to hear this message in its entirety, why not download to your smartphone the Search the Scriptures app from the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. You can also listen to it online at searchthescriptures.org 
or order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, Dr. Brugge's wife is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at the battle within. Join us then as we search the scriptures.